We are on the cusp of a major social change. Do you feel it? Even if you don't, make no mistake, change is coming, and it is going to be unforgettable. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Hart, and here on Prime Spark, where we work with and on behalf of women over 55, I want to help you find that spark that will ignite your way forward, reflect your gifts to the world, and illuminate your path through this next stage of life. Through these podcast conversations, I hope to inspire you to see how you can make a significant contribution to some of the gnarly problems that are facing us right now. Join me, and together, let's discover our prime spark. Hi, I'm Sarah Hart. Welcome to Prime Spark. I'm so happy you're here with us. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close, with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling, and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get going now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Megan Gerhardt, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Megan W. Gerhardt, PhD, is a professor of management and leadership at the Farmer School of Business at Miami University, where she also serves as Director of Leadership Development for the Farmer School and the Robert D. Johnson Co-Director of the Isaac and Oxley Center for Business Leadership. Megan has published widely on generational differences in the workplace and is author of the book, Gentelligence, a revolutionary approach to leading an intergenerational workforce. Her Gentelligence work has been featured in Harvard Business Review, NBCnews.com, The Washington Post, The Chicago Tribune, The San Francisco Chronicle, Market Watch, The Houston Chronicle, and Inc. Magazine, among others. In 2017, her TEDx talk, Why I Love Millennials, and you should too, was released. Dr. Gerhardt's work focuses on leveraging differences to achieve impact and extraordinary levels of performance. Welcome, Megan. I'm so happy you're here with us. Well, I am so happy to be here, Sarah. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So just in getting started, let me ask you, do you experience getting older? And if you do, what is that experience? And if you don't, why do you think it is that you don't? Hmm. I love what a great question. Uh, I think I do. My birthday is actually this weekend. So Oh, happy um, birthday. Thank you. Uh, I, I think I've experienced getting older in a slightly different way than maybe many other people. I've always felt that I was one of the younger people in rooms that I've been in for a number of reasons. I skipped a grade when I was in kindergarten. So growing up, I was always the youngest, which I didn't always enjoy. Uh, that was sometimes challenging in different ways. Uh, and then when I started my career I went right from undergrad to grad school to my uh, job as a professor. So I was a pretty young faculty member. I started when I was 26, and that was over 20 years ago. So I think I've been a younger person in many professional rooms I've been in, 
which definitely impacts your view on aging. I always felt like I was kind of catching up. Uh, I was excited to get older for a long time because I felt like that might give me more credibility or more, um, you know, respect because I I was earning my stripes in that way. Um, but I think it depends on what you mean by getting older, because certainly the gap between myself and my students increases every year in terms of age. But I also love the energy I get from them. I think it keeps me, I hesitate to say young because I feel like young then is defined as the positive thing and older is defined as the negative thing, which is not, of course, what I think or what you think. Um, but I, I, I do think that I experience aging in terms of gaining wisdom, but I certainly hope that I um, age in a way that's still energizing and I still feel very relevant. Uh, so I think it depends on how we define older and aging, but I, I do age, but I am very happy about it. We'll land on that note. You still feel like one of the younger people in the room when you're in professional situations. You know, interestingly, I do. And that's that's an odd dynamic because I have been at this university for 20 years. Um, and I have been in my area of expertise, um, you know, a, a professional and an expert in that space a long time, probably 15 years in generational research. Um, but I still, you know, often compared to the the rooms I'm in or the panels I'm on, I think I'm often maybe more of the mean than the younger right now. Maybe that's the tra tra transition I've I've felt. You know, as as you know, a lot of advocates in the positive aging space tend to be older, and that's probably out of necessity, right? It's a it's an it's something you feel much more acutely as you get older, and so many of my colleagues in the positive aging space tend to be maybe a bit older than I am. Um, and, and so that's probably contributing to it. So you have a, this is an overgeneralization, but you have an interesting dichotomy of audiences you're in. You're in with your students and then you're in with people in the positive aging movement and right. who do tend to be older. Um, and so you go from younger to older uh, and there you are smack in the middle. Yeah, that's the Gen X in me, I think, Sarah. We're always right in the middle, right, of, of all of these things. But I love it. I think that actually might be my my strength in, in what I bring to this and why my approach has been seen as very unique. Is I think when you're talking to people about age or generations or you hear about this, very often people are focusing on one end or the other. So when we're talking about positive aging or age discrimination or gerontology or whatever angle on that, the focus is very much in the important area of making sure we're protecting older people, we are reinvigorating them, giving them opportunities, helping them understand, you know, all of the potential they have and, and, and all of the things that you do in your work and other people do in their work. On the other end, we tend to get a lot of attention for understanding Gen Z or leading Gen Z or move over, it's Gen Z, or before that, it was the millennials. It's pretty rare that somebody sits in the middle and says, well, I'm here to champion for the value of all generations. And in doing that, I'm not devaluing older generations. I'm not devaluing younger generations. I'm saying the magic is in 
what happens when I view people older than me as having important perspective and wisdom and people younger than me as having important perspective and wisdom and also value my own. That to me is what we've been missing in terms of the conversation. So yes, age and generational differences can be very challenging, but they also can be a significant opportunity if we were able to lead and manage them that way. So I personally think it's rare that we have somebody who says, I want the whole audience. So sometimes I write very age positive pieces about the importance of valuing our older workers and making them feel engaged and making sure we can retain them as long as they want to work. And sometimes I write pieces about how we're judging and stereotyping and misunderstanding our younger workers. And, and I love that because I really genuinely believe that we're missing huge opportunity by maybe shutting one part of the conversation out. Megan, you got interested in this a long time before people started talking about generations and intergenerational and generational differences and on and on. How did you get interested in this? It's re- that's fascinating. So it is a very personal story to me. So when I began my career, as I said, I had just turned 26 years old. Uh, and as a faculty member, that's that's pretty young. And uh, I learned so much from my older colleagues. Uh, mentorship I got was amazing and, and, you know, so many good lessons and strategies. But I very naturally found myself turning to my students who were at that time, you know, they're almost always 18 to 22. That's that's the students that come in. But that was closer in age to me than many of my colleagues. And so I naturally was having conversations, asking their perspective, their feedback. What do they see that I don't see? And I learned so much in both directions. And I thought, this is fantastic. Like, what a great opportunity for learning, for collaboration. And I learned really quickly that it was making me better at my job. And I am an organizational psychologist, so my degree is in organizational behavior. I do study, you know, how do we leverage what makes us different in order to create excellence? And so I thought, well, I wonder how other organizations are leveraging this. Like, how are other people tapping into this great source of learning? And this was actually the time in which our millennials had first started entering the workplace, which is what led to my TEDx talk. Because as I'm sure you remember, that was a time of mostly frustration. It was a very large generation. It was significantly bolder, more educated, more outspoken than my generation had been. I was really upsetting a lot of dynamics and a lot of people. And so I just became fascinated. Why have I had a positive experience with this when so many other people are having a negative one? What are they missing that I could highlight or I could bring to their perspective so that we don't shame people for their age or their experience or their perspective being different than ours, but we we collaborate and we innovate using those different perspectives. And so that's really the mission of my work is how do we view age diversity as an opportunity, not a threat? Um, as you said, in my long list of complicated wordy titles there, you know, I direct a center for leadership where the students help run the center. You know, they make a lot of the decisions. They give the input. And so I live this every day. And Gentelligence is is the name of my book, but it's also a philosophy. It's about the fact that 
learning happens in both directions and and the best solutions come when you have all hands on deck, regardless of age. So I I genuinely believe that's true. So I've studied it from academic perspective. I've been speaking on it for, you know, 15 years or so now. um, And I, I genuinely believe it beyond that. So that's interesting, Megan, because your your um, academic background, your PhD, was in organizational psychology, organizational behavior, um, and human resource management. Right, it was a psych so, undergrad, very psych focused. Yep. So you didn't. It sounds like. Tell me if this is wrong. It sounds like you didn't actually get interested in generations and differences and so forth until you started teaching and started living in the middle of it. Is that true? I think so. I mean, I remember really clearly the first time I spoke on the topic beyond just sort of observing it and and having a personal relevance was I was sitting in my office back in 2009. So do the math on that. That was a while ago. Um, And someone from our dean's office knocked on the door and said, we have a company coming to campus for a conference. They were interested in an expert on how do you lead different generations? Would you would you be able to go talk to them? And I hadn't published anything on that. I had never spoken on it. I honestly think, Sarah, they asked me because I was of a different generation than most of my colleagues. I think they were like, well, she must know something about this because she's 20, however old I was then. And so I thought, well, I think I could get up to speed. Like I want to dig into what the research says and best practices, but it was sort of a a thrown in. And I went in more with questions than answers for them, really with this idea of, well, I haven't ever had a problem with this. Why are they having a problem? Why do they need a speaker on this? Um, And just the learning began, the conversations they were having, the way they were framing the, the differences that the way young people were doing things was wrong because it was different. Or the younger people feeling like the older people were out of touch because they weren't doing it the way they were doing it. And it gets any kind of diversity issue, you get locked into, well, if it's not my way, then it's wrong. Instead of it's not my way, isn't that interesting? Why why do they see it that way? And what could I learn from that and vice versa? And so to me, it was very much a diversity and inclusion topic. It was a cross-cultural topic. but nobody was looking at it that way. They were just irritated. So yeah, I think I think I it, it, it all came together. I was living it every day. I was being asked about it, and there was such a need. And the need has not stopped. It has just skyrocketed. I think since that point. Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, when we have uh, you know three, four, five generations in the workplace at the same time, then 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 there's a big need. That, when you said that uh, to go talk to these people who had come to campus and wanted to talk to somebody, you mentioned something about the research. There must not have been. Was there any research at that point on intergenerational communications? Um, there was, you know, and I think it, still to this day, if you look at academic research, so academic research is always going to be slower than what's going on in the popular press conversation because it will take us years and years to get a study designed, executed, reviewed, uh, you know, accepted. That's There's just a very long lag time. And so what I found when I dug into the research was a lot of debate about whether generational differences were real. And you will still see this to this day and in popular press, like it, much ado about nothing, question mark. And, and what we would find is someone would do a study, let's say, you know, just 
Gen X have different values than baby boomers? That typical question. So we would study that. We would put a list of values together. We would ask those different generations. We would compare it. We wouldn't find difference. So then the conclusion would be, look, generational differences aren't real. Or we would look at, you know, the millennials really have less of a work ethic than baby boomers. Well, we'd ask a bunch of questions and we'd compare it. And a lot of times we would, wouldn't find much. And the conclusions that kept getting drawn were, well, then nothing's there. And as I read that, I thought, or people would say, well, we're mixing up life cycle differences with generational differences. So of course, millennials seem self-centered. They're 18 to 22. Who wasn't sort of self-centered from 18 to 22? They'll grow out of it. So there was a lot of mess, I think, in how we were looking at this and academics largely were saying, I don't think there's anything there. But when you would go into companies, they they absolutely were positive something was theirs. And that's interesting, right? Why do they think we have a problem? But on the science side, we're saying, no, you don't. Sorry, you're wrong. Well, that doesn't help them. What are they experiencing? And so I thought, I think we're we're missing things. And so, you know, a lot of the work I've done, so I'll give you an example of of how I reconcile this. I view generation as one layer of, of who we are. It's one layer of your identity and age is another layer. And so is, you know, race and gender and everything else you want to include in your identity. And when you admit that, and that's very consistent with identity theory we have in our field, that helps because then you can say, well, yes, um, Right now, Gen Zs are 11 to 26. So that's their generation, but they also have that age, which is also a life stage. So of course, we don't separate those things. Those are all playing together. But also, my kid at 17 is having a totally different life experience than I had at 17. So that's that's not just life stage. That's something different. And so... What I love about what I do is that it's actually very complex. And when you say like, oh, generations don't, shouldn't exist or generational differences aren't really real, it's sort of like saying I'm colorblind. It's better than stereotyping and biasing people, but it's not as good as appreciating their differences and understanding them in a complex way. So the last thing I'll say about it and to sort of understand like the the research piece on it is like one of my favorite things to talk about when I address leaders and companies is academics are right that we actually have the same needs no matter how old we are. We all have very similar internal needs for respect, connection, competence, autonomy, like I'm positive your audience is absolutely feels that way. So if you just looked at what we needed across generations, you would say, well, look, no generational differences aren't real. The needs are consistent. But then what we miss is the fact that the norms that we've learned growing up on how you fulfill those needs are very different across generations. So what did, how did you learn to gain respect when you started your career, right? What was the norm about how someone earns respect? It, it probably, I'm guessing, but it probably was you put your head down and you work hard and you do your job. And when we decide you've earned it, we'll tap you on the shoulder, hopefully, and tell you it's time for your promotion or your raise. That's how you get respect. So that's the rules we followed. Well, well, fast forward to millennials or Gen Z, they want respect, but how they've been taught to earn it is you put your hand up. 
you tell somebody you're ready. You you wave your hand and let them know it's you. You your turn. You go get it, or someone's going to overlook you, and you're not going to get the opportunity. So the need is the same. The norm is different, and that's what a lot of our academic research misses because we draw really quick, almost incremental conclusions of of whether or not difference exists based on just one thing. Well, it's, this is a simplest. This is simplistic, but it's almost as if the wrong questions were being asked. I think so, because, you know, we have very strong standards in academia for good reason, and we absolutely should, about the ways in which we do research. And some of the best generational research is done by, like, Jean Twingy out of San Diego State, who has a new book on generations, I think, coming out this spring. She does great research because she she does long-term research, right? She looks at how do generational norms um you know, affect things over time. She does research that allows her to separate um, life cycle differences from generational difference. And that's really hard research to do. And in academia, not everybody has the bandwidth or time to do that kind of research. So they're doing bits, you know, we, and then we try to look at it all together. So I think, yeah, I think a lot of the wrong questions are being asked, but I also think that's similar to I always say in, when I do company talks that we're asking the wrong questions, right? So for example, you know, I just did a talk last week where somebody was saying, well, these kids today, they don't want to work. And I said, well, how do you define work? Like, that's the question. I would want to know how they define work versus how you define work. And then we can have a conversation. But when you just simply say, well, they don't want to work, that's not the right that's not the right way to think about it right that you're not asking the right question or what does flexibility mean or how do you define success those are the questions we should be asking and i don't think we're asking those in the workplace either the um so the way you would describe the 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 huge contribution you're making and the way you see it as compared with the way a lot of people have seen it is looking at the whole span and seeing you know, everything is good and bad. Um, and we should be um, looking at what's good about each generation and what are they bringing rather than talking about these people don't do it right and these people don't do it right. Absolutely. I think, you know, curiosity over judgment is, you know, to, to paraphrase Walt Whitman, we talk about that a lot in our book, is it's not right or wrong. It's just different. So probably the best mindset when you're talking about working across generations. So I'm going to put myself in the mindset of, of your audience, right? Who's working in, in, in organizations where there might be people doing things very differently than them. And it's hard to understand why or like it or make sense of it. And so I like to say, you know, imagine you're going abroad and you're going to be interacting with people who grew up in an entirely different way than you did. Different norms, different language, different needs, different, all of those things. You know that. And so you prepare yourself. You think about, well, why might they be approaching things this way? Well, I like to approach them that way. We hope, right, that we put ourselves in that sort of mindset and say, we have to work a little bit harder to make sure I don't misunderstand what's happening or their intent or they don't misunderstand me because that's where a lot of those famous cross-cultural gaffes come in. And so if we could take that same mindset 
And when we're hit with something in an organization where we don't understand, like that doesn't make sense to me. Why are they doing it that way? That's wrong. We back up and say, well, that's interesting. So like, you don't have to be a mind reader. Like it's very difficult to understand the way in which someone else is seeing a situation, especially if that person's 20 years or older or younger than you. So I think twice a week, I say around here to my students, I'll say, can you help me understand whatever it is, you know, why that laptop's out or why you didn't check your email this weekend or which is better than what's wrong with you, (laughs) right? Like I get frustrated. I want to say, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you check your email? Or why didn't you respond when I sent you that? So I'll say, can you help me understand why you didn't respond to that email. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that it's okay that they didn't. This is where we also get hung up. Like, especially when you're older and there's a way that we do things around here and people aren't getting that or understanding it. I'm not saying we should just do it a new way because that's the way our youngest people want to do it. But the question of, can you help me understand going in with curiosity instead of judgment First of all, they're going to be way more likely to give you a helpful explanation. Second, you're going to get information that you didn't have. And you can either say, thank you for the explanation. Here, let me explain to you why I need you to do it this way, because I'm in charge or it's my company or whatever it is. Or in my world, I often get information where I go, oh, well, that changes how I'm going to do this moving forward because you have a better idea than I do, or I didn't know that we could do it that way, or, you know, whatever it is. So I always say, again, like you said, as much as I champion every generation, it's an interesting question of, well, I'm going to learn something and we could do it the other way too, right? Like I try to get my, my students and younger people to, you know, if they don't like the way something's being done, ask the question, can you help me understand why you tend to send me emails instead of text messages or why we have to have a phone call instead of doing that over email or whatever it is. Can you help me understand shows curiosity, it shows respect, it allows someone to explain, and they're much more likely to hear your response as well. And so I think you go into it with with curiosity and you learn a lot. And then we decide together, well, what norm makes sense for what we're trying to accomplish? And there's a lot of great stories out there about that. So oh, that, that, that was my take on it. What are the, just as you were saying that, I was thinking about what are the, what are the similarities and differences between um, intergenerational communication and interracial communication? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on interracial communication. So I want to make that clear. But I do work a lot with people who are DE&I experts and in the DE&I space. And I, I had the opportunity a few months ago to do the opening session for um, or the opening kind of remarks for a Future of Work Institute session. And it was on how generational differences impact the way we see diversity. So I'll draw a few conclusions, just sort of food for thought. So, so one is, The point of this session, which was fascinating for me and I learned a lot, was that the way people approach diversity and inclusion is 
impacted pretty significantly by their age. Because if you are a DEI expert, the time in which you started your career, there were a different set of norms and, and priorities and things, um, depending on when that was. And so, for example, they had experts on this call who entered the space at a time where there was just certain things you didn't discuss at work. And now, of course, we've thankfully moved the needle quite a bit on that. But they were talking about what terms do you use to describe different um, races, gender identities, ethnicities. Um, People differ on that based on, in part, their age. Um, There are terms that are embraced by younger audiences or younger people that used to be very derogatory. So sometimes, um, for example, in this, this isn't interracial, but um, they were talking about the word queer and how younger people embrace that to as an empowering term and older people in the DE&I space often don't want to use it because of, of the connotations that they were raised with around it. And so it was so, those sorts of really great conversations about how do we meet everybody's needs. But I will say, Sarah, there's a couple things that I think are important. So um, I worked with a client who said that she realized a change issue she was having was really a generational one, and it was about race-related issues. So it was a company where they were really determined to move the needle on social justice issues. And their younger employees wanted these changes to happen really, really quickly, like urgency around it, um, rightfully so. But some of their older employees were were much more hesitant about the speed. They wanted to be more thoughtful. They wanted to be more um, maybe intentional, take their time to decide And what ended up happening was the younger people on the staff perceived those changes or that attitude that it should happen methodically and slower as, well, you don't really care. If you cared, you would change this today. And the older individuals said, well, the reason we want to take this slowly is we want to make sure the change actually sticks. If we move too fast, we're going to make mistakes or it's going to be short-lived so in fact, we're moving slow because we we do care. But it was a really fascinating intersection between sort of social justice, racial issues in, in generation in terms of how fast, what's the speed of change and what does it mean to change and, and all of these great things. I think that's one connection area I've seen between. And then I think... Uh, I just wrote a piece about microaggressions, which of course we hear most about in the race space, but they also, there's also age-related microaggressions. So things like, um, Sarah, when are you going to retire? You got to be about ready to retire, Sarah, which sounds like a super pleasant opening to a conversation, but it's actually sort of hostile. Like, well, how are you supposed to take that? Right. Or if you said to me, well, you look too young to be a professor. Thank you. Like, what does that mean? Like, if I'm young, I can't possibly be qualified or right. Like there are things that maybe don't seem like a big deal, but are that that, you know, we're starting to realize are relevant in age as well as race. And then finally, there's, of course, and I've I've actually been made more aware of this the more I've done this work is I often talk about like, what did it mean to grow up in a certain generation? Like, what are some of the norms or experiences that we associate without stereotyping, we associate with the generation. 
And I had um, someone who um, messaged me and said, well, I think the baby boomer narrative you're giving is true if you were white, but I don't think it's true if you were black. And I thought, oh, that's a really good call out. I want to think more about that. So I, I think there's lots of, of intersectionalities of, of identity that we think about there. But at its core, we're talking about difference and honoring the fact that difference is valuable in both spaces. It's uh, fascinating, Megan. I just um, produced a conference last week, just just last week, produced a conference. And one of the keynote speakers was an African-American woman. And she and the title of her talk was, I, this isn't verbatim, but um, Growing Older. Is this experience the same for women of color as it is for white women? Mm -hmm. And I had never thought of that before. So when I first, I was on a, a, months ago, was on a call in a group with her and heard her mention that. And I thought, we have to have that at the conference because I've never thought of that in my life. And so the more times we can start thinking about these kinds of things, um, the similarities and differences, I think it's really, really good. So I, I applaud so your too. work. And one of the yeah. things I would encourage you to do, and you probably do this, but there's so much DE&I work done that doesn't take into account age. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's one of the things I've, I, I don't, I don't understand it. And I think people haven't thought about it. Like one of our reviewers of our books said, this is the missing link in DE&I. And that's not to devalue the very important work that needs to happen in other areas of DE&I. But ageism is the most socially acceptable bias um, in, in that we, we can, we put it in headlines. We make fun of it. Like, okay, boomer, we, we are comfortable with sort of the, the, you know, publicly shaming people for either being young or old or of a, you know, a different generation. And we have a lot of social norms around other kinds of difference, not doing that. Um, and then I've, you know, depends on the statistics you look at, but I've heard anywhere from 8% to 50% of, of DE&I strategies don't include age. AARP has better data on this than other places, but there's this, I think, global and then the question is, what does it mean to include age in DE&I? So I've done some digging myself on like Fortune 100 companies and do they include age just to see like where we're at with this. And there's a big difference, Sarah, in like some of them will have age listed along with like five other things. But if you try to seek out like, well, what, what work are they doing to be inclusive of age? You can't find anything. It's like, oh, well, we put it on the list, but like you know, versus other, other things that are, are, um, you know, actually have strategies and action items. And so just asking people, and I I'll put on LinkedIn, like what company do you know, that's doing a really great job in the age diversity space? Like, I want to talk to them. I'm writing another book right now on how to position age in your DE and I strategy. That's my next good. book. Good, good. I expect you to be one of my first, um, readers. So. I will, I will, because I was, uh, I just, I wrote a response to a LinkedIn post last week or the week before. And the man was, this was in, I can't remember if it was Harvard Business Review or New York Times, but it was one of those places. He was talking about um, how we don't have enough workers. 
and we're, we're having more and more problem with workers. And he said, there are two ways to deal with this. And I thought, yes, he's going to say, retain your older workers and hire good, experienced older workers. And he said, the first way is to have more babies. And the second way is to increase immigration. And I thought, oh, really? Oh, well, both of those are both of those are interesting. They're pretty long term and hiring and retaining really good older workers is not won't take a whole long time. Well, and I yes. And, you know, those are that's a place where I'd say yes. And right. That, those are both great ideas. We should definitely explore those. And so I waded into this. I won't say on accident like this was clearly my choice. But last summer. My son is 17. And last summer we were having a conversation at lunch. I was doing a lot of traveling for my book. And he said, well, I hope your flight doesn't get canceled. We do have a pilot shortage. And I said, oh, right. I was like, well, I hope it doesn't get canceled too. He said, well, it's our own fault. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, we laid off all those pilots during COVID and that mandatory retirement age. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they, they forced pilots to retire at, you know, 65. And I was like, that can't be right. He's like, look it up. And so I went down this rabbit hole. I wrote a piece for NBC about how we value seniority in the pilot commercial airline pilot industry until your 65th birthday, and then you're not allowed to work. And it's one of the few remaining industries that has a mandatory retirement age. And so I went on the record saying I thought it was ageist, that if you can pass your health screenings, like, yes, we all value safety, but if you can pass your health screenings, why in the world are we forcing people to retire at 65? That's an arbitrary cutoff. It's not based. I talked to my colleagues in gerontology to make sure I was correct. Like it's not based on anything other than this general, you know, sense that as we get older, our health gets worse, but there's lots of quality checks in place to make sure that the people flying are able to fly safely. Anyway, long story short, I did you know, my due diligence on that. And it ended up, um, a quote from it got shared on Fox News with um, our Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. And somebody said, you know, because what I said was, as of 2030, no baby boomers will be legally allowed to fly planes in the United States. Like, everybody will have aged out. That's a baby boomer. And they said, what do you think of this, you know, Mr. Secretary? Is the an- what's the answer? And he said, well, the answer isn't to keep boomers in the air indefinitely. We need to train younger pilots. And I thought, well, first of all, he hasn't read the article, all respect. But second of all, yes, and we should be training and attracting lots of younger pilots. And we should be retaining our qualified, interested older pilots as long as they are able to fly safely and they want to fly that is a much shorter road to, to filling that shortage than those other ones. And they ended up reducing the number of hours a pilot has to be trained rather than let people stay longer. And I just do not understand that at all. I wonder how, I, you may know this, I wonder how old the pilot was who landed on Hudson River that time. Um, he, I think he was in his early 60s. I don't, I'm not sure about that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's yeah, I right. think he, I think I, I sort of remember he was a bit older than a bit younger. And, um, and I think it was experience. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Anyway, Megan, this has been fantastic. I could talk to you forever about this. And I just (laughs) want to quickly ask you, in addition to the book, I cannot wait for it to come out. What is next? What dreams do you have that you haven't realized yet? Well, what a wonderful ending question. You know, I think I am always trying to search for the best ways to start this conversation in as many places as possible. Um, And I have worked on how do I scale that? I've been very excited. Our our, uh, book was, uh, you know, well-received and we wrote an article for Harvard Business Review last year that's helped us with our reach. I think my dream is to be able to plant this seed and open up this conversation and change this perspective in as many industries and places as, as I can. Uh, I just recently started my Gentelligence Academy, which is a remote training platform where people can get certified in this. Um, Just this last month, I launched my Train the Trainer program for internal people who might want to start doing this work at their company using the Gentelligence framework because I'm just one person. So, um, you know, I think creating a critical mass where this isn't a surprise when people think about it, they, you know, that they, it is something that they've heard about before they're thinking about it that way. I think that's a big goal for me, uh, continuing the conversation. Um, and also, you know, my goal is always, how do we help people be as successful and, and effective as, as they want to be and leverage their difference to do that, that we value our older workers as much as we do our younger and maybe beyond that, how do we value what we could create together? Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. So that's our time today. Please join us again. You can find our Prime Spark podcast on every popular outlet. Find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Megan Gerhardt. This has been so much fun. How can people get in touch with you, Megan, if they would like to know more from you? Sure. Probably the easiest way is to go to my website. It's www.profgerhardt.com. You can sign up for my mailing list, check out the work that I'm doing, um, or connect with me on LinkedIn. That's always good, too. Great. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Take care, spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to stay updated, you can head over to my website, primesparkwomen.com and get my free spark guide, seven questions to ignite your spark to help you discover your own spark. See you in the next episode.